Hello, I'm Frank Mausen, a partner based in Luxembourg. Welcome to this ad delivery podcast, part of a Market Horizon series in which we are looking at blockchain bonds and how legal frameworks are changing around the world to accommodate the issuance of blockchain bonds. In the first part of this episode, we were joined by my partners Justin Kopp from New York and Angus Tham from Hong Kong, who provided us with an overview of international legal and regulatory developments to facilitate digital bond issuances in the US and various APEC jurisdictions. Today, with the second part of this episode, we continue our tour. We will look at how legal frameworks are changing in the EU and the UK to welcome the issuance of DLT bonds. And I am joined by my partners Avi Ikwe from Paris, Salvador Ruiz from Madrid, Jonathan Heringa from Amsterdam, Nick Bradbury from London, as well as my colleagues Daphne van Hoeven from Amsterdam, Daniela Schmidt from Frankfurt, Jason Ricks, London, Emilio Lassala from Rome, and Philip Nöldner from Luxembourg. The EU pilot regime will produce its effects as of 23rd March 2023. It forms part of the Digital Finance Package of the European Commission, which aims to support the digital transition. Philip, can you please talk us through the EU pilot regime? Well, thank you so much for having me. Indeed, the EU pilot regime is a brand new regime, and it's something that's never really been done before in the EU. So what it is, is that it's a regulatory experiment aiming to promote the application of DLT and identify any obstacles in its regulations applicable to the financial markets. The idea is to create a controlled space in which market participants can implement DLT in their operations. The pilot regime will allow DLT market infrastructures to be temporarily exempted from EU rules that actually hinder them from providing solutions for the trading and settlement of transactions through this technology. So the pilot regime will apply from 23 March 23 onwards, but it's temporary and so will be the exemptions. So by March 2026, ESMA will either extend it, terminate it, or make it permanent by proposing amendments to these relevant laws. So what are the market infrastructures covered in this EU pilot regime? Well, the regime actually covers three types of DLT market infrastructures. A DLT MTS that would only admit to trading DLT financial instruments, a DLT SS that settles transactions in DLT financial instruments against the payment or delivery, and that also allows the initial recording of these DLT financial instruments or the provision of safekeeping services in relation to these instruments. Or finally, a DLT TSS that effectively combines the services performed by the DLT MTF and the DLT SS. So to operate such a market infrastructure, you need to be either authorized as a market infrastructure under MIFID or CSDR, or you can really apply for a lighter license subject to the fact that you would only request this lighter license with the relevant exemptions that are provided under the pilot regime. A big uh, benefit for this is that the DLT authorization comes with the EU passports. So this allows such an operator to really offer their services all across the EU. Very interesting. I know what a settlement system is and what an MTF is, but what is the TSS? Philip, can you please expand on this? This new market infrastructure has been introduced by the pilot regime and allows the combination of trading and settlement activities within a single entity. 
It is a game changer because this was impossible prior to the pilot regime because of the policy of risk specialization and the unbundling to foster competition. So therefore, it's bringing something fundamentally new to the table in the EU, meaning that you can have now more of a one-stop shop market infrastructure provider. Could you please also tell us what kind of exemptions stem from this EU pilot regime? The operator of the infrastructure will be granted exemptions from certain requirements, and these come from MIFID II or CSDR. And these requirements today, as I mentioned, already hinder you from using DLT. So you'll see that there's two possible exemptions for a DLT MTS. So one is to allow, for example, participants that are natural persons and legal persons as well, dealing on own accounts. So that creates really new opportunities for both MTS and participants. So without crystal balling, really what this can do, it's the fact that you can see this as a push in the market to lower transaction fees because the intermediary is not needed anymore if you're having you know, a retail investor signing on directly to that infrastructure and it's going to bring you more volume because of this direct access. And since new participants will also take advantage of a possibility to self-custody their assets on the DLT MTF, this really also sort of disintermediates certain costly players. The other exemption refers to the obligation to report transactions. So therefore, the market infrastructure wouldn't be, wouldn't be transitioning from an active duty to report while to simply maintaining records that are accessible to the supervisory authorities. So that, that, that is quite big. Well, the DLT-SS can actually be exempted from specific definitions that apply to it that really sort of stop them from being able to, to use DLT to make the relevant records as to the notary function when, for example, a CSD um, accepted a new security into its, its services. And so other exemptions is really pertain to the in integrity of an issue and how the assets are segregated to, uh, to accommodate DLT operators where specific segregation may not be available as well as how settlement sales are prevented and how they're addressed, as well regarding the uh, outsourcing of a core service or a third party. And I mean, that's going to be very relevant uh, to a market infrastructure using DLT protocols that are developed on an open source basis, for example. As well, settlement finality is going to be slightly waived simply because you're not operating a traditional SFD SSS. So that's also going to be a key one and, and other pieces that can be exempted from is really cash settlements and um, standard links uh, between CSDs and between other market infrastructures. So there's going to be definitely a lot of new innovation and a lot of a lot of new opportunities for these players. And I think another point that should be mentioned is the fact that you have the DLT TSS and that really combines both the DLT MTF and the DLT SS. So in a sense, the exemptions will be the same. And you can really combine those together to create this one-stop shop uh, market infrastructure to really gain the most from the DLT uh, promises in order to really have a more dynamic capital market. If I'm not mistaken, Philip, I know that the EU pilot regime was heavily negotiated and practitioners and market players criticized that the envisaged limitations set forth in the initial draft of the pilot regime were far too restrictive. Unfortunately, restrictions have been maintained, 
So, Philip, can you please tell us what those are? Definitely. Market infrastructures, I mean, they should be aware of the thresholds and eligible financial instruments under this regime. So, right now for shares, for example, you could only have shares of less than 500 million that can be traded on such a, let's say, DLT pallet regime compliant market infrastructure. For bonds, this is stops at 1 billion. For USITs and other fund units, it's 500 million. And ultimately, the aggregate market value of all the instruments that are admitted to trading on such infrastructure should not exceed 6 billion. So obviously, for this familiar with the capital markets world, this is not a huge amount, but um, yeah. You know, you can ask yourself, well, is it actually good news or bad news? Well, the 500 million market cap threshold for shares, uh, you know, might block major companies to use such a DLT market infrastructure to use their shares. Regarding the aggregate market value as well, uh, 6 billion seems quite restrictive, but ultimately it all depends on the popularity of the market infrastructure and whether other market infrastructures are available in the market so so that issuers can really spread out their, their issuances across different uh, infrastructures. And again, I mean, it's just a temporary regime. So presumably, I think once people have tested it out, see that it works, I think this could coincide well with the end of the regime, of the temporary uh, regime, and then really have the limits being potentially waived uh, you know, upon the ESMA review. So I think in summary, what we can say is that the pilot regime, well, creates new opportunities for different actors of the financial markets. So for one, issuers, well, they'll undoubtedly enjoy these new market infrastructures, the lack of intermediaries and the possibility to have a one-stop shop. You know, you're going to have various fintech actors that will also benefit from such a sandbox, develop and foster innovation all across Europe, particularly in this capital market space. A third opportunity would be for retail investors. They're going to take advantage of the direct access to these infrastructures and um, that's going to bring more integrated and better services with less intermediaries. And finally, while traditional market infrastructures will have a new horizon of innovative uh, products and opportunities to look at, I mean, and they'll potentially be joining forces with other market infrastructures. You know, you could potentially see stock exchanges and CSDs combining their efforts to create, for example, uh, this DLT TSS. So that's exciting news. Many thanks, Philip, for the useful discussion on the EU pilot regime. We will now look at a number of individual European Union jurisdictions, and then we'll look at the UK. Hervé, let's start with Paris. So what are the developments in France towards the creation of a legal framework to accommodate the issuance of digital bonds? Thank you very much. Several initiatives are being taken in France to further modernize the legislation on digital financial securities, including digital bonds. In this context, the High Legal Committee has recently published on its website a report entitled The Reform of the Legal Regime of Digital Financial Securities. This report follows the work of a group of specialists, and this group included lawyers, including Alain and Over Paris, corporate lawyers, academics, and representatives of the authorities. The purpose of the report is to examine the changes to be made to French law in order to make it compatible with blockchain technology when the European regulation relating to the pilot regime will soon come into force. If French law was a pioneer in 2017 
on the recognition of the registration of financial securities on decentralized register. This first reform did not draw all the consequences in terms of adapting French law to this technology. In particular, this 2017 reform limited its scope to unlisted financial securities, which by definition is limitative. The purpose of the report is in particular to extend the benefit of the use of decentralized registers, i.e. DLTs, to listed securities by presenting two options for legislative changes. First, should we also allow the bearer form to these digital financial titles? Or, secondly, should we create a completely new regime for DLT securities, i.e. one which would neither take the nominative form nor the bearer form, in which case digital securities would simply be part of a DLT and specific rules would be applicable to them. It would be a question of providing that the titles held in DLT can be negotiated on negotiation platform insofar as it is a new form of detention, in addition, obviously, to the nominative and bearer forms that coexist. After a market consultation organized by the French market regulator, DMF, the recommendations of this report are currently being studied by the French Treasury. Thank you, Hervé. So we will watch the space with regard to changes to come in France. I would like now to turn to Germany, so over to Daniela. What is the status of the legal framework in Germany for digital bond issuances? Thanks for having me here, and I'm really happy to have this opportunity to talk about the regulation in Germany. In Germany, it is now possible to also bonds in purely digital, dematerialized form as electronic securities. This is now possible thanks to the German E-Securities Act, which was introduced in June 21. The new act abolishes the requirement for physical document of title, a global note. Before its introduction, blockchain-based financial instruments were already known in the German market, but could not be issued as bonds. The new E-Securities Act now removes such barriers to digitalization. Electronic securities can be issued as crypto securities or as central register securities. In case of crypto securities, the digital bond can be issued by means of a blockchain or DLT, but this is not compulsory. The E-Securities Act is designed technology neutral. For central register E-Securities, however, a centralized database is required, but it is not excluded that this is also kept on blockchain technology. What is important to note for central register securities is that they can only be issued via a central securities depository, CSD, or a custody bank, a central register keeper. Crypto securities, on the other hand, can be issued and transferred without the interaction with a custody bank or CSD. For both central register and crypto securities, the E-Securities Act further distinguishes between individual registration and collective entries. Collective entries are made in the name of a depository as holder. Such depository will act as trustee, allowing intermediated holding structures and book transfers as in the traditional world. On the other hand, in an individual entry, the individual end investor is recorded as the holder, the transfers being made peer-to-peer as in existing crypto networks. The new regime is currently available for bonds as well as some fund units. But the digital transformation in Germany does not stop here. It is planned to broaden the scope and to also include shares. Thank you very much, Daniela. 
Good to hear about these developments in Germany. Turning to you, Salvador, so what is new in Spain? Spain has approved and published a new law substantially amending the Spanish securities market law and that acknowledges and regulates DLT bonds as a new form of registration of securities. The new Spanish securities market law is quite advanced. It is technologically neutral, allowing both centralized and decentralized registration systems and any type of public permission or private blockchain DLT technology. The rules for the registration will need to be agreed by the issuer in an issuance document. It allows the issuance by both Spanish and foreign issuers and under Spanish and foreign law. The issuer will be able to entrust the registration in entities responsible for the registrations that may be credit institutions, certain investment firms, certain market infrastructures, and those are the persons that comply with the requirements set out by regulations. The law recognizes the valid constitution and issuance of digital securities by the first entry in the registry, the transfer of ownership, and the delivery of possession by the record in the registry, the creation of security interest, and the way to attest ownership and other proprietary in rent rights such as pledges. The owner will be the person recorded in the blockchain or DLT, and the issuer will be entitled to discharge his obligations by fulfilling them in favor of the owner of record. This law has been passed as law just in time so that projects may be launched when the pilot regime enters into force. Thank you for this update, Salvador. Over to you, Daphne Jonathan. Are there any noteworthy developments on digital bonds in the Netherlands? Thank you. From a financial regulatory perspective, there are no noteworthy developments in the Netherlands with respect to digital bonds. Basically, digital bonds qualify as a security under the Dutch Financial Supervision Act, and as such as a financial instrument under MIFID II, unless the transferability is restricted in the terms and conditions of the digital bonds, which in practice will almost never be the case. There have been some discussions between market parties and regulators about the role of traditional financial institutions in connection with the issuance, safekeeping and administration of digital bonds, and on how applicable requirements should be met in the context of a digital bond. Our experience is that Dutch regulators are willing to think with market parties about technology-neutral applications of these type of obligations on the parties involved. There is no legal framework or case law in respect of the qualification of tokenized instruments in the Netherlands under the civil law. Therefore, the exact qualification of a crypto asset depends on the characteristics of the relevant crypto assets. Depending on the type of crypto asset, rights of a holder could, for example, qualify as contractual rights only, bear similarity to things, or could qualify as proprietary rights. Digital bonds would typically qualify as a right in name and not a right to bearer. The owner of such digital bonds will have a claim against the issuer for the various rights conferred under the terms and conditions of the digital bonds, including rights to payment of interest and principal, and any governance rights. There is currently no specific legal framework for tokenized instruments in the Netherlands that would create more legal certainty about the civil law qualification of digital bonds, 
and would embed the practical aspects of blockchain in the legal framework. As far as we are aware, the Dutch legislator has no intention to create such a legal framework. As a result, mandatory provisions of Dutch property law in respect of rights in name apply to the ownership and transfer of digital bonds, which are currently not aligned with the concepts of transfer and ownership of digital bonds as provided for by the blockchain. Thank you, Daphne and Jonathan, for your interesting insights. Now let us continue our tour and have a stop at Italy. So over to you, Emiliano. Thanks for the question. The recent law decree on digital financial instruments has introduced a new legal framework in Italy for the issuance and transfer of certain financial instruments, including bonds in digital form, i.e. issued by using the distributed ledger technology. Before this new law decree, two alternative regimes were available to issue and transfer bonds under Italian law. The Italian civil code applicable to securities in paper form or, as an alternative, the Italian Financial Services Act, applicable to dematerialized securities, i.e. to securities issued in book entry form. The law decree on digital financial instruments has the aims of creating a legal bridge to the pilot regime provided by the new European Digital Financial Package, supporting legal innovation and new technologies, and has introduced a third regime which applies to bonds to be issued and transferred through a digital ledger. Without entering too much detail, it is important to note that the new law allows the identification of the final holder of the bonds directly or indirectly through the ledger. In particular, the registration in the ledger can be made not only in favor of the bond holder, but also as an alternative in favor of a bank or an investment company acting in its own name but on behalf of one or more clients. In addition, an entity, which could be the issuer itself or a third party, will be responsible for the ledger, only upon prior registration in a specific register to be held by the Italian Authority Council. A specific liability regime has also been introduced for the entity responsible for the ledger. Finally, with the aim of allowing the application of the pilot regime in Italy, Consob and Banca d'Italia have been identified as the competent authorities for the new regime on tokenized financial instruments. Thus, upon the publication of the law decree on digital financial instruments, Italy prepares to start the experimentation of the pilot sandbox and test the new regime to issue and transfer tokenized financial instruments. Thank you very much, Emiliano. We are looking forward to hearing more from you in the future on developments in Italy. And now to our last stop in continental Europe before we focus on the UK, so, Philip, over to you. Can you please let us know what the DLT framework is in Luxembourg? Well, th thank you so much. And again, thank you for having me. So, what I can say is that Luxembourg is currently positioned as one of the most DLT-friendly jurisdictions in the EU, and that's really due to its robust DLT legal framework. So, we have three laws applicable in Luxembourg that really enshrine the use of the DLT to issue, transfer, and settle uh, DLT financial instruments, and there's currently a third bill that's pending in Parliament that really allows financial collateral arrangements to be taken over such bonds. So, you know, in a sense, the three laws provide market market participants with the legal certainty in respect of the issuance, the storage, the transferring, and the collateralization of such bonds on on the technology. So that's that's really quite exciting. 
So I take it that securities registered in the DLT environment can be issued under the laws of Luxembourg. Is that correct, Philip? Well, it's possible by relying on one, the provisions applicable to the issuance of dematerialized securities, and two, by the reliance on the Securities Act 2001 in relation to registered form debt securities or immobilized securities. So to be clear, if you're going to issue securities in dematerialized form, you're going to do this by relying on the dematerialized securities framework. What that means is that these securities must be Lux law governed, issued in accordance with the applicable legal framework. So that's namely the Dematerialized Securities Act of 2013. And um, yeah, you know, there is setup. If you're operating in a DLT environment, the wallet that's either in the form of a DLT wallet or a pure blockchain address will be operated by a central account keeper that's going to record the issuance of the dematerialized securities in the issuance account. And then the account keeper will record the securities transfers on the accounts. Now, as a second option, you know, you have the option to also issue your security as a debt security in registered form. So generally speaking, these securities are validly issued if the entitlement to the security is documented by a registration on the securities holder register. So which could be physical or electronic. And a view that's currently being taken by Luxembourg practitioners is that it's possible for an issuer to contractually opt for the DLT to be the primary register that's used to record the issuance of such securities. And it really eliminates the requirement of involving a settlement organization or a central uh, account keeper. So in a sense, what this really means is that the issuer can opt to have its register being the blockchain itself and then can really let the blockchain operate as it's registered to spot who the investors are. So the point with this second option is that the investor is interacting directly with the issuer. So obviously that raises a number of AML, KYC and, and other regulatory points. So who can be the central account keeper or settlement organization, Philip? So as mentioned, I mean, it's really not always mandatory to have sort of a central counterparty or a central party to oversee the custody chain and the holding chain of these bonds. So for registered securities, as we said, it's possible to really avoid having such a central party. And we would expect the issuer or the mandated third party to be the entity to keep this register. And, and there, either the issuer or the third party would use the blockchain as a register. However, for dematerialized securities, well, yeah, that's necessary to involve a central account keeper. And, and actually, we see in the market that some players actually would want uh, to, to have the safety of having one entity that is sort of a trusted player in the whole holding chain in order to ensure that there's no artificial inflation of securities and that the, the, the issuer, in case it doesn't want to interact with all the investors, that it can do so by mandating or appointing this central organization. And um, to anticipate the question, well, who can be such an, such an entity? Well, in Luxembourg, it really can be any EU credit institution or any EU investment firm, and they don't need to have an additional license to provide such services in Luxembourg. And um, I think we should note, however, that this sort of lack of specific license is only specific to unlisted debt securities. And as well, I mean, I think there it's it's about drilling down a law, but one can see that you do have to meet certain conditions. 
such as safety, organizational, and sort of account operating mechanisms in order to be sure that you're able to provide these services. Now, slightly switching topic. So is it possible, Philip, to issue securities whose terms and conditions are subject to foreign law? So in order to issue securities under foreign law, I mean, it would be possible to do it by going to the registered note route. But if you're going with regard to the dematerialized route, well, yeah, then these securities need to be Luxembourg law governed. That's good to know. Are there any specific requirements for the blockchain technology to use? Well, it's important to note that there's no specific requirements with respect to the blockchain technology itself under the Securities Act 2001 or the Dematerialized Securities Act of 2013. So the laws are really intended to be technologically neutral to allow new technologies to develop and as well to not have these regimes being completely obsolete, let's say in six months, 12 months or 18 months. So there, the attitude of Luxembourg was really to be flexible and to be light touch and not to be overly encompassing in order to frame a specific issuance model that really can be obsolete uh, relatively in short order. So in a nutshell, while Luxembourg law allows you to issue Lex law bond or foreign law governed bonds in either dematerialized or registered form and by using central parties or not. So, you know, I think in a tagline, we can say that Luxembourg law gives you a lot of options with pure legal certainty. So that's very interesting. Thank you very much for that overview of the Luxembourg legal framework, Philip. Now, having heard about the EU DLT pilot regime, as well as legislative developments in various EU jurisdictions, I would like to turn to the UK. Nick, I have heard that in the UK, FMI's handboxes have been proposed. Can you tell us about them and their expected impact on DLT bonds? Yes, the UK government's Financial Services and Markets Bill proposes a new framework for the Bank of England's Regulation of Financial Market Infrastructure, or FMI, and includes specifically a proposal for the creation of FMI sandboxes. Within these sandboxes, HM Treasury will be able to make regulations that allow FMIs to test activities which use new or developing technology. HMT will be able to temporarily disapply or modify relevant legislation relating to the regulation of FMIs in the sandbox. This includes elements of retained UK law, such as UK CSDR, UK MAR and UK MAFIA, and also other legislation such as the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000 and the Uncertificated Securities Regulations 2001. HMT will also be able to make permanent changes to legislation on the basis of lessons learned in each utilisation of an FMI sandbox. In respect of how the sandboxes could be relevant to DLT bonds, the government's explanatory notes to the bill provided the following example of the opportunities for DLT bonds offered by the FMI sandboxes. Operators of multilateral trading facilities might look to use their own DLT arrangements to settle tokenized securities traded on their market. But at present, CSDR requires transferable securities traded on a UK trading venue to be recorded in book entry form in a CSD or third country CSD. What this means is that the operator of an MTF is prevented from being able to use its own settlement arrangements to settle transactions on its market. Modifications to legislation may therefore provide clarity within CSDR around accommodating the functioning of DLT in a way that meets the same regulatory outcomes, but in a different way. Thanks, Nick. Very interesting. So the idea behind the FMI sandboxes sounds similar to the EU DLT pilot regime. Are there any major differences? 
And when will the FMA's sandboxes become available? Much of the discussion to date around the FMI sandboxes has been on the use of DLT. But unlike the EU DLT pilot regime, the FMI sandbox powers are intended to be sufficiently flexible to enable different FMI sandboxes to test different technologies, not just DLT. Having said that, we expect that much of the early focus will be on similar uh, arrangements that are also the focus of the EU DLT pilot regime. The FMI sandboxes are expected to be up and running this year after the Financial Services and Markets Bill receives royal assent, which is expected to occur this spring. So we could see the first sandboxes up and running as early as the second half of this year. Got it. Thanks, Nick. Could you please also fill us in on the UK HMT's wider consultation on crypto assets, which I understand is ongoing? In particular, does the consultation cover DLT bonds? In February, the UK HMT published its long-awaited consultation on extending financial services licensing to a wider range of crypto asset activities. This will expand the UK regulatory perimeter to cover a very wide range of crypto assets. However, the key point for DLT bonds is that they are already UK-regulated investments today and will continue to be subject to those regulatory regimes, notwithstanding the bond's tokenized form or the use of DLT for settlement. Thanks, Nick, for this insight. Turning now to Jason, as we continue to look at the UK's legal framework. Jason, I understand that UK Jurisdiction Task Force has recently published a legal statement on the issuance and transfer of blockchain bonds under English law. What in... In a couple of sentences, does the legal statement say? The digital bonds, including those issued on a public blockchain, can be easily accommodated by English law. Good to know. That's straight to the point. And how did they come to that view in relation to digital bonds? Well, first, I have to delve into a bit of history. The reason for this is that when ANO partner Dan Fletcher and I we're looking at this issue on a live transaction a while back, we realized that you need to understand how traditional bonds work in order to see what's different about digital bonds and then decide whether any of that new stuff is a problem. So we both dug out Jeff Fuller's classic books on the topic. Okay, you have my permission for a short history lesson. Traditional bearer bonds are readily tradable debt obligations. As a matter of English law, this stems from their being negotiable, i.e. they can be transferred by physical delivery, and the person who has the bond can, generally, assume that they have good title to it. Bearer bonds get this negotiable status by what's called mercantile custom, basically being treated as such over a prolonged period. Normally, when you transfer something to someone, you can't transfer a better title than you have yourself, a rule which clings onto its Latin label, nemo dat. Since bearer bonds are negotiable under the common law, this normal rule does not apply, as long as certain conditions are met. The ability generally to take title at face value was an important part of the success of the euro bonds market that Alan and Overy helped foster by documenting the first issue for Autostrada. In 1963. As an aside, for some reason, bearer bonds always make me think of the 1980s Die Hard and the arch baddie Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman, who is trying to steal them from the vault of the Nakatomi Plaza, only to be outfoxed by a white vest sporting goodie going by the name of John McClane. 
Anyhow, with registered bonds, a designated person keeps the register and transfers are affected by the register being updated. These days, both bearer bonds and registered bonds are usually immobilized, stuck in a vault, with a custodian, and participants trade in contractual or equitable rights to them. Thanks, Jason. That's quite funny. It's the first time I hear Die Hard being connected to the capital markets world. So how does all this apply to digital bonds? If digital bonds simply mean the use of blockchain technology, while the bonds are still effectively centrally managed registered bonds, then the analysis is pretty much the same as normal. But it is a bit more tricky where the blockchain is decentralized and where the token on the blockchain can give rise to property rights separate from a contractual right to payment. This decoupling risk does not arise with bearer bonds where the debt is embodied in the physical document and the physical document is negotiable. The question is therefore how the same effect can be achieved where you're dealing with a decentralized digital bond. The legal statement proposes a multi-layered approach to achieve this. So Jason, what is that multi-layered approach? Right. So this is the bit where I should probably say something like, pay attention 007, or here comes the science bit, since it's relatively complex. First, you make the digital bond a deed pole. And a deed pole is a unilateral promise, binding from the moment it is made. It doesn't need any consideration. Anyone who's intended to benefit from the promise can sue to enforce it. And it can be expressed to be irrevocable. The classic deed pole, I guess, is the one they use to change your name. And if, like me, you like derivations, the designation refers to the fact that the paper the promise was written on used to be cut or polled. Deed poles can be signed electronically by an issuer. Second, you have the terms of the digital bond state, various things, for example, that it is control, not proving good title, that matters for enforcement of the bond debt that the bonds are intended to be treated as if they are negotiable and that no earlier controller of the token can assert a better legal title against a later controller. And that the person who has control of the token and can transfer it for redemption can require the issuer to pay them and payment will operate as a complete discharge of the debt. Third, you structure the digital bonds so that and you analyze them as if what actually happens on a transfer of a token is not that the same thing is transferred, but rather that there is a cancelling of the original token and the creation of a new token, a change of control from the transferor to the recipient, and a change to the distributed ledger. So it seems it's all good then under the UK legal framework, correct? Yes, for the most part, but there is still a risk that the digital bond would not operate in exactly the same way as the fully negotiable bearer bond when it comes to a third party acquiring an equitable interest. But that would only be relevant if that third party managed to acquire it in good faith and without notice of any competing interest. Otherwise, they just take subject to any earlier equitable interest in the normal way. Got it. There's one final question I've been dying to ask. What weight does this legal statement have within the UK legal framework? Good question. There's clear precedent for legal opinions and legal statements being adopted by the court and effectively 
becoming the law. It's one of the clever functions of how the common law works. And for the best example, recent example of this is the 2019 UKJT legal statement on crypto assets, which is certainly delivered on this front. It was cited a month after publication in a judgment which described it as compelling and relied on to decide that a proprietary injunction could be granted over a crypto asset. Since then, it's made it as far as New Zealand. So let's hope that the UKJT is as successful with this statement as it was with its original one. Well, thank you, Jason, for the useful overview in relation to this recent development in the UK. Which brings us to the end of the second and final part of this episode of our Market Horizon series of podcasts. Thank you again to all of our contributors and thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning into this episode. I hope that you have found this a useful counter through the legal developments that are paving the way for digital bond issuances across the various EU jurisdictions and the UK. Music